Hi there, and welcome to Emmanuel. This is our weekly teaching podcast. We hope that it encourages you to live a little bit more every day like Jesus taught us to. God bless you. You may freely eat the fruit of any tree in this garden, except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat that fruit, God said, you are sure to die. And chapter 3 opens with the serpent beginning to, to talk with Eve. And Bonhoeffer says to us that this is the first conversation about God that we will find in our Bibles. And we read that the serpent was the most subtle, the most crafty, the most shrewd of all the wild animals. And I'm not going to go into it a lot, but the serpent is used throughout Scripture, different descriptions, maybe not a serpent as we start to picture one, but a creature with tremendous ability, described as the most cunning creature of the field. So how does this creature convince Eve, there in the Garden of Eden, that perfect place, to disobey her God? Well, the first thing he does is to cast doubt on the word of God. He taps into Eve's curiosity. He raises a doubt in her mind. Did God really say that you must not eat any of the fruit from any of the trees here in the garden? And Victor Hamilton says that Satan grossly distorts and exaggerates what God said. He says how it creates in Eve's mind the impression that God is spiteful and mean, obsessively jealous, and self-protective. People have that impression of God today, do they not? And to be honest, are there times when we as Christians sometimes fight back against that very idea? And we think, we don't know why God wants that. Why is he commanding that of us? It's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. Well, Eve starts to sound a bit defensive as we read on, and she exaggerates too, actually. And she says, of course we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. It's only the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat from. God said, you must not eat from that one. And then she adds and exaggerates, you can't even touch it or you're going to die. And so Hamilton says that Satan then shifts. That one doesn't really work. So he goes to tactic number two, and he makes it appear that he knows God better than Eve does. And he says, you won't die. In fact, God knows that if you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like him, because you will know good from evil. In other words, disobey him and get blessings that he's not telling you about. Hamilton says it so well. Doesn't this sound like it appeals to us? Do it, and you can be more than you are now. You can even be more than even God ever intended you to be. So number one, questioning God's word. Number two, questioning God's righteousness and his holiness, his love, his intentions for us, trying to keep us down from being all we could be. And then tactic number three. Number three has an A and a B to it. A, physical things that are so appealing and tempting, and B, psychological things that are appealing and tempting. That tree was physically appealing. It looked good. It was good for good food. And psychologically, 
It promised to be transforming, to give her wisdom. Eve had access to every tree in that garden. Beautiful trees, good food. She and Adam were in an intimate, complete relationship with God himself. Where could there ever be more wisdom than that? But still the temptation was great. And why? Because Eve could only see what she felt she wanted, what she perceived she didn't have, what she felt would make her happy, and she wanted it now. Could we ever put our names there instead of the name of Eve? And then in verse 6, she was convinced, and she saw that the tree was beautiful, its fruit looked delicious, she wanted the wisdom that it would give her, and then that short sentence, and it's just a gripping sentence in our Bible, so she took some of the fruit and she ate it. And then she turned to her husband who was there with her, gave him some. She didn't have to try to tempt him or convince him. Didn't have to challenge him. No questions. She just gave him some. He ate it too. And nothing was ever the same again. And now they knew good from evil. And McGee explains that when we read that their eyes were opened, it means their consciences. They have been innocent. They have been ignorant of all evil. They now know what it means to feel guilty, to have a guilty complex. A psychologist in Southern California says that a guilty complex is as much a part of us as our right arm is. And it's true, isn't it? We can go right back to a smallest child, ask any young boy or girl, or watch a child, and see how much they love to get approval. They draw a picture, they bring it to you, and they say, look, and they just love to hear us say, well done, good job on that picture. But they also know when they've done something wrong. They're afraid. They know when they are in trouble. And the older they get, the more they realize it's not just the trouble that they are in, but they realize that they've hurt a mother, a father, a teacher. They know that they've hurt one of their friends. And they realize that the relationship isn't right now because of what they've done. So it starts in us from the smallest child. Hamilton says this was hardly the knowledge that Adam and Eve had bargained for. And even the healthy relationship that they had had as man and wife now had something unpleasant about it, something filled with shame. So what do they do? They try to fix the problem themselves. Instead of turning back to God, who was right there to access, right there in the garden, they try to self-protect, they try to hide, they try to cover themselves. Isn't that exactly what you and I do? Fix it ourselves, cover it, try to hide it. And just as it does not work for us, it didn't work for them. But hear how God handled the situation. He went looking for them. I find that amazing. God went looking for Adam and Eve. Courses in psychology and sociology will tell us that every human being searches for a meaning in life. Everyone searches for some God in our lives that will bring us satisfaction and peace and meaning. Every other religion from Christianity will require that we search for that God and for that religion and that we work hard to get whatever might be granted to us from it. 
What does God's word tell us? He comes to us. He searches us out. God's word says we love him because he first loved us. Jesus said, you haven't chosen me. I've chosen you. But picture God. Hear him. Adam, Adam, where are you? He's not searching them out with a big stick. Rather, a question, drawing them to him. Where are you? Adam doesn't answer the question. He just says, I heard you were here, and I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. You could almost hear some panic there. And Hamilton says, It was not necessary for the Lord to even speak for that man to panic. It was only necessary for the Lord's presence to be there, walking in the garden. And I believe it's the same with us. When we break our relationship with God, we try to hide, we feel his presence. We don't want God to see. And God asked Adam two questions. First of all, he said, who told you? Three possible answers to that. Well, the serpent could have told him, his wife could have told him, his own eyes. But God doesn't wait, rather, for an answer. Did you do what I told you not to do? In other words, did you eat from that one tree? What should Adam's answer have been? A simple, yes, God, I did it. Just tell the truth. Confess it. When I do marriage preparation with couples, I use a questionnaire in a book by Gary Chapman. It's called The Five Languages of Apology. We can say, I repent, I'm sorry. I I regret what I did and name what we did. We can say, I accept responsibility for my part in this. What can I do to make it right with you? Will you forgive me? And to each of us of those five, there's one that's usually most important when someone has hurt us. So if we are made in God's image, surely God would have loved to have heard just one of those from Adam. God, yes, I did it. I ate of that tree. I regret that I did that. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? We don't read that Adam did even one. Instead, he gets defensive and he points blame and he goes from being the perpetrator to becoming a victim now. It wasn't me, it was Eve. She gave me that fruit. And really, it was you, God, because you gave me this woman to be my wife. And then Eve does much the same. It was the serpent. It wasn't me. It was the serpent who deceived me. The devil made me do it. The temptations, the way we give in to temptation, the way we cover up, the way we lay blame, the way we justify, the way we refuse to confess and repent, they all go way, way, way back, deep-rooted. And I'm afraid these struggles do stay with us for a lifetime. But we have choices. We have answers. We have hope. We have Jesus. Ooh, I agree. (laughs) The choices that Adam and Eve made brought consequences, and I read those. And we read how Adam and Eve had to leave the garden. And Hamilton points out the consequences that they faced involved a life function and also a relationship for each of them. 
For the woman, it was the physical life function of childbearing that would bring pain and the psychological, the relationship with her husband. For the man, it was his disappointments as a laborer, but also a strain from the relationship, from the garden, from God's creation, the soil. Is it not so for us today? Physical life functions and relationships, and we suffer when we experience the consequences of giving in to temptation. But I repeat, we have answers, we have hope. Our Jewish brothers and sisters celebrate a feast around this whole teaching from the uh, first chapters of Genesis. They call it Rosh Hashanah, and actually it begins tonight. And it's a celebration of, they have two New Years, this is their second New Year, and a celebration of the creation of man and woman, of humankind. And they blow the shofar horn and trumpets to raise the noise. And they recite verses about God and his sovereignty and about him as king of the universe. I couldn't help but think about that some as we were singing this morning. How worthy is our God, our Jesus. But Rosh Hashanah is also a day of judgment, a call to repent. It's a solemn day to account for their sin, to recognize consequences and judgment and ask for God's mercy. I do love to learn from the Jewish people because their stories are the stories that Jesus learned. The Old Testament was the Bible that Jesus was using and he celebrated the Jewish rites and the feasts and the holidays. Jesus ate kosher food. He would have had his bar mitzvah at age 13. He went to the temple along with his disciples. Paul did all these things as well. But my heart aches for our Jewish brothers and sisters today because they do not have the answer. They do not have the hope that we have as we look at Genesis 3. They do not have Jesus. The other scripture this morning is from Hebrews 2, verses 9 to 10. Jesus faced all the same temptations that we face, and he suffered and he died for us. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory, scripture tells us. And it was only right that God should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them, to bring us into salvation. God's word. Our relationship, our relationship is made right with God through Jesus, forgiven, set free through him, the power of the Holy Spirit to help us make right choices in the face of temptation. We can't just look at Genesis chapter 3 and say it was all about them, Adam and Eve. We can't just look around us and say it's about anyone else. Your role and my role in God's world is personal. How have you, how have I hurt and disappointed God? How have you and how have I hurt and disappointed someone we know? In an email I received this week from an Anglican priest, he writes, it has to be personal before it can be corporate. God must do a deep work in us, breaking us, reducing us until we cry out for transformation of our own hearts before we can ever cry out for our communities. The inauguration of humanity's role 
into God's world. Adam and Eve, you and I, our role in God's world. The inauguration of Jesus into our world. The inauguration of the kingdom. That's our answer. That's our hope. I firmly believe this morning that is our only hope. So summing up on this Rosh Hashanah, let's make this our day of praise and repentance. We praise him because through Christ and Christ in us, his presence all around us, we have our hope. He is in the space right in front of us. He is as close as the air that we breathe. Yes, we praise God. But in this world today, Satan is using exactly the same tactics, and they're still working. And we've all experienced them, and they're powerful still. So we cling to Jesus who died for us and rose again and is at God's right hand praying for us, interceding. And when we do take the fruit and eat it, let's learn to be honest, no hiding, no blaming, no playing victim. Let's start to learn to face the consequences with God's help. Let's know when it's time to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I hurt you, Lord. Draw me back into relationship with you. I want to walk with you in peace again. And Lord, would you help me to say that I'm sorry to someone else that I've hurt? Even if I feel that I can justify it, even if I feel that maybe they had a big part to play in it, help me to make it right. Praise and repentance and forgiveness will we not come and be made right. Let's pray. Jesus, you have taught us to pray, and part of what you taught was lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, forgive us, and help us to forgive. I pray that we've heard that this morning and that we will continually pray, call out to you for help in the face of temptation. Run to you first as soon as it even appears. And God, we thank you for your amazing mercy and your love and your grace. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to die, that you were raised again by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that you are alive today. We praise you. We love you. We adore you. In Jesus' name, amen.